welcome to another episode of the Trifecta Podcast. This is a very special episode. This is the first time I'm having a fellow member of the Lady Pod Squad community on here. So yeah, this is your host, Jack, and with me today is my guest. Hi, I'm LJ and I uh, host or co-host a podcast on Ali McBeal. We're the Bygones podcast and I co-host it with my sister. Um, but it's just me on the podcast uh, on Trifecta today and I'm very excited to be here. I'm very excited to have <laughs> you here and I'm so thrilled that you're able to be a guest on this specific topic because when I heard about your personal experience with Moulin yeah. Rouge, which we'll get to eventually, <laughs> I was very happy that you were wanting to talk about the Red Curtain trilogy. I'm really excited to be here. It's a topic that uh, I don't think if you uh, ask me what's your ideal thing to talk about on a podcast, it would probably be this topic. So <laughs> I'm glad I'm here. Perfect. So yeah, the topic we're covering this week is the Red Curtain trilogy by, is it Baz Luhrmann? Mm, yeah. I feel like I've heard people say Baz Luhrmann. Okay. So he's an Australian director and the Red Curtain trilogy consists of, according to Wikipedia, three individual films that each contain a theater motif that reappears throughout the film. So there's dance in Strictly Ballroom, mm -hmm. poetry and language in Romeo and Juliet, and music in Moulin Rouge. Yeah. So it's... Technically, like he calls it a trilogy, but the films are also individual. They're not necessarily connected. It's just the stylistic elements that connect them. Yeah, it's a loose trilogy, isn't it? it the, 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 the characters don't overlap. The stories don't overlap, but there's themes that are consistent through all of them. I think that's the best way of thinking about it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so with background, I first became aware of Baz Luhrmann when I watched Romeo and Juliet in my freshman year English class. Like we covered the story and then we watched the 1960 something adaptation. And then we watched the 1996 adaptation that Baz Luhrmann directed. And I remember being so mesmerized by it. And that was the first time that I really started paying attention to the technical aspects of film, like the cinematography, the mise-en-scene. And I actually wrote a paper on the mise-en-scene in this movie for a college film class. Really? So, like, it really stuck with me for a long time. Like, five years later, I ended up writing a paper on it. Wow. Yeah. And then <laughs> shortly after, I watched Moulin Rouge. And I can't remember if I was aware at the time that they had the same director or if I found that out after watching the movie. But it was... Um, for a theater ceremony that we had. We used to do, um, in high school theater, we would do award ceremonies among other high schools. It was called Cappies. Okay. And the theme was Moulin Rouge. So it was kind of decorated like Moulin Rouge. And I wanted to watch the movie to have an idea of what it was like before going to that ceremony. And um, it just happened to be like a week after seeing Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah. And then I never saw Strictly Ballroom until now. So I'm interested to talk about that movie with you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so should I do my background? Is that... 
Yes. Yeah. Please great. go for it. Uh, cool. So I guess, uh, like you, my first uh, exposure to Baz Luhrmann as a director was definitely Romeo and Juliet. I was uh, 11 when it came out, so I was quite young. Um, and I didn't go and see it at the cinema, but um, a bit later, I think I must have been about 12. It was before I saw Titanic. Um, it was not that much before Titanic came out over here, which I think was a bit later than the US. So um, sometime in 97, I I must have seen Romeo and Juliet, got it at the video store or whatever, um, because all my I went to an all girls school and all anyone could talk about was Leonardo DiCaprio in that movie and how hot he was. <laughs> so I was like, right, I need to get my hands on this. Um, and I rented it from the video store and um, I was just blown away by the style of film. And I don't think I really knew that's what I was um, excited by at the time because I was quite young, but I just knew that it engaged me in a way that very few other types of film had in the past. It was very different. It made, uh, like you, I was studying Shakespeare in English class at the time. We were actually doing Romeo and Juliet um, around that time or we were just about to. And like you, they showed the film because um, the, the Baz Luhrmann one, we didn't watch the 60s one I think because our teachers our teachers are kind of given up and gone well this guy's engaging them far more than we can ever do so we might as well just show the cool movie <laughs> um so and we just couldn't get enough and from then on I was um hooked on Leonardo DiCaprio this was the beginning of my Leo um obsession and I had a whole folder like covered in Leonardo DiCaprio like stills of him from the movie and I'd like cut them all out of magazines and pasted it all in my folder I wasn't the only one lots of people had done that um so it meant that um when Titanic came out obviously and I think this is probably the same globally like hordes of teenage girls went to see Titanic and loved it oh yeah <laughs> so that was my first exposure to Baz Luhrmann as a director and that was what kind of drew me in I think I was just kind of the right place at the right time like that demographic <laughs> um so when I guess five years later Moulin Rouge came out I was aware it was the same director I'd got more into film at that point I was watching a lot of movies um and so knew like used to look up who the directors were of films and stuff um in a way that not many other people did so I was aware it was Baz Luhrmann so I was like well this will be good because Romeo and Juliet was like the best thing ever so it must be amazing and I went to see it at the theatre when it came out and I just thought it was the best thing I'd ever seen in my entire life I was mm -hmm. like finally this is a director who understands me and what I like and things to be over the top and melodramatic and loud and it's like my personality in a movie and so I went to see mm -hmm. it at the theatre like four times <laughs> I, I went on my own like my friends like refused to come with me after a while because they were like we've already seen it like twice why do we need to go again and I was like because I can't get enough um so it, it was just brilliant um but it wasn't until I was in my adult years that I actually went back and discovered Strictly Ballroom so um and I can't remember when it was that I watched it for the first time but it was um quite a few years I think it must have been it was after Baz did Australia but I think it was before The Great Gatsby so sometime 
in the last 10 years I watched uh, Strictly Born for the first time um, and I really enjoy that movie too um, it's um, I haven't watched it as many times as the other two but um, I've got a real f- sort of soft spot for Australian culture because um, the UK and Australia have uh, ver- we have different cultures but a lot of our culture overlaps and we get quite a lot of Australian TV over here um, like some of their soaps that I <laughs> and I love Australian soaps I'm a big uh, Neighbours fan if anyone watches Neighbours um, I still watch it today which not a lot of people do um, and so I anything that's Australian culture and, and Strictly Ballroom is very very Australian um, I love so I really enjoy that movie too so that was quite long-winded but that's my background <laughs> No, I encourage as much background as you want, because it's kind of like a time where you get to talk about how you were introduced to something. And sometimes that's like very exciting. So I'm glad to hear all of that. Yeah. (laughs) So I guess we'll start with Strictly Ballroom first, going in order of when the films were released. That seems like a good idea. (laughs) Yeah. So Strictly Ballroom was released in 1992, and I watched it for the first time. It was available on um, Netflix in the U.S., so I was able to stream it through there. I can tell this is a Lerman film just from, like, the framing of shots, and he has, like, those intense zooms on actors' faces, and the color palette is very similar to the other movies in this trilogy. Totally. I think it's interesting when you come at this film after seeing the other two you're suddenly like oh I see where he got this style and where his style was starting to develop here like there's a lot of things that are the same uh, across them yeah definitely and I think watching the other two before seeing this kind of gives you a better appreciation for it too yeah I agree I agree it's so interesting because I'd heard about this movie for so many years without actually seeing it and so when I actually saw it I was very Like, I had no clue that this was a movie with talking heads where people would talk directly to the camera. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like in a mockumentary kind of setup. Yeah. And it's, like, very theatrical, which is to be expected. It's interesting because perhaps it... I've Because I've been more familiar with the other source material that Lerman's films are based on before seeing them, like, I was familiar with Romeo and Juliet. I was familiar enough with elements of Moulin Rouge... Um, when I saw The Great Gatsby, of course, I was familiar with that before seeing the movie. I had a hard time keeping track of the characters and plot lines at first with this movie. And I remember having to check the Wikipedia page just to keep things straight. Like, okay, how are these two people connected? What's this person's background? I think it's interesting seeing someone who kind of has more of a manic style of storytelling and directing and not having any prior background knowledge before seeing this movie how that kind of affected me being able to keep track of what was going on yeah I feel like um that's an element of his filmmaking that got better through the films I think um it was it's a it's a lot more clearer to follow the story in in Romeo and Juliet you can tell this is this in a way it's rough around the edges strictly um in a way that Romeo and Juliet and, and Moulin Rouge particularly certainly aren't he's re- refined his style he's honed it he's clarified things so it's easier for the audience I think yeah definitely and I didn't write many 
more notes on Strictly Ballroom because I was just kind of experiencing it for the first time. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this movie. Yeah, so I um, I just love how Aussie it is. I just think it's totally, I mean, if you're Australian or you know anything about Australian culture, you're immediately like, oh, I'm at home with this. I get it. Like he's, um, uh, it's just really uh, small town, like Waratah is where they um base it um and uh that is a town that i know of through australian soaps so they often mention waratah um so i was like oh waratah um and uh yeah you can totally see his kind of i think i agree with you you can see his stylized way of filming that he was starting to develop and that was his kind of vibe there but it's been carried through it's nice to see where it came from i guess i suppose when you look back um i loved all of the so as you mentioned at the beginning um the theatrical element of this film is dance and I am a big dance fan um uh, I'm not any good at it myself I did a little of it as a kid but um I love watching it like ballroom latin any of that so um i don't know if you watch dancing with the stars um we have the uk version which is um strictly come dancing um in the uk and it's called strictly come dancing because um years ago in the 70s it was just called um come dancing i think um and when they were rebooting the format for like uh a more modern audience they were like how can we make this more exciting and they basically took inspiration from Strictly Ballroom and called it Strictly Come Dancing to make it seem more like pizzazzy I suppose and that's the format that was adopted for Dancing with the Stars Um, so I don't know if you you like that program but I love it (laughs) it's a show that um I would always just catch like I had a roommate in college that watched it every week and I would catch yeah little bits of it when she watched it and I was always very entertained by it and it's interesting I don't know if um they do this in the UK version as much but the people that they bring on sometimes are very unexpected celebrities yeah yeah and it's yeah. really and it's nice to follow their journey yeah it's cool um so so yeah so I love watching those types of shows I get really into it every year it we do it uh once a year in in the UK they have a season watching Strictly Ballroom it was like oh you know all of the dance sequences are so good and I don't know if you read up about Baz's background but he has a background in dance um so I think his mum was a mum was a dance teacher he'd studied at um the Australian I don't know some Australian film and uh, music drama theatrical school um so he's got a deep appreciation of dance and and you can tell that from how he films those shots and I think you we can come on to it later but I think you see that when he revisits it in Moulin Rouge he knows how to film those dance sequences so they're exciting so you can see the moves so you can see what type of dance it is like it's it's brilliant I loved it and one of the things that's uh, that all the group competition shots uh, are great for that but one of the standout um scenes for me is the the one where uh, is it it's Scott isn't it the main character in Strictly Ballroom can't remember his name but that you know when he does his <sighs> solo dance where he's just dancing his like new crazy hip style that's against all of the competition's rules and the world of ballroom's rules on his own like the use of lighting the use of the staging it's just brilliant I just loved it um 
so that's that's one of the things I really appreciate about Basin that you see in this first film is his getting under the skin of the element of theatre that he wants to portray and doing it really well. Like you can tell his passion for it. Oh yeah, definitely. And there was one scene in particular, which I think I was reading this on the Wikipedia page at some point for this movie that um, Strictly Ballroom started out as a theatrical production. Yeah. Like when he was in school, like I don't know if he was earning an Australian equivalent of a bachelor's or a master's, what we would call them in the US, but this was some kind of big distinction project for him. And then he took this play and then ended up doing a film version of it. But it's interesting because there's one scene in particular and it's towards the beginning where the main character just starts dancing on his own in a studio and the lighting changes and he's kind of dancing all around the place. And then his eventual partner shows up and talks to him about wanting to dance with him and everything. That whole sequence just seemed so intended for the stage that it was interesting having that in mind. I'm like, I could definitely see how that would be staged on stage. (laughs) Yeah, 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 I I agree. Um, And it's just, and again, the other scene from that perspective that stands out to me is the final scene where they Mm -hmm. decide they're actually going to dance. And when the music cuts out and they have to dance with just the clapping and it's yes. just pure dance at the end because there's no music and to hold an audience's attention around mm-hmm. that I mean eventually they bring the music back in to make it dramatic and exciting at the end but to hold you're like I don't know about you but I'm on the edge of my seat at that bit I'm like oh my god this is electric it's so good and it's interesting as well because I felt like that the ending with like silence at the end that's actually I know in Strictly Borum they do bring the sound back up to the end but if you think about the ending of Romeo and Juliet and Moulin Rouge they're both quiet yeah like Romeo and Juliet has that montage at the end that's that's very quiet sort of music and then it goes into Prince mm-hmm. um, the, the the captain like the police guy um, telling everyone off and like a plague on both who has it there's nothing it's silence and then again with Moulin Rouge it's just silence because obviously spoiler alert Satine dies yeah <laughs> um, it's it's you know he's he's it's interesting that all three of them end very given how loud and big and over the top the rest of the movies are, Mm -hmm. the ends are always quiet. And so I thought that was interesting. It is very interesting. And something else that I, I feel like I remember reading this on one of the movies, IMDb trivia or something a while back is that another recurring theme he does with all of these films is that they start off very chaotic and kind of all over the place. And then as soon as the two leads meet and start to fall in love, the movie kind of slows down from that point. Yeah. Yeah. That's really true. Yeah. And I, and I think actually I always, when people are like, what make, why do you like Baz Luhrmann so much? Like, what is it about him that you enjoy? And I just think he is one of the masters at building worlds like creating a world that you're just in and you understand the rules you understand the key players and I think those beginnings where everything Mm -hmm. is chaotic and crazy I mean it it might seem overwhelming to some people but for me I'm like I am in I understand now what this world is and and yeah and as you say and as soon as the two leads meet it slows down but I enjoy that manic beginning because I'm like at least I understand exactly right from the beginning what's going on here so it's uh yeah I enjoy that about him I do too I'm glad you brought up the world building thing yeah yeah (laughs) that's really interesting but yeah it does totally make sense 
Moving into Romeo and Juliet, which came out in 1996, which I should probably mention, I think these are the US release dates, so they might be slightly different for UK. Yeah, I think uh, for, I don't know about Strictly Ballroom because I didn't, I was too young to see it at the cinema, but um, Romeo and Juliet, I think, was uh, almost certainly the year after 97, but earlier in the year. I love this movie so much. There's just oh my so God. much... I've got that exact note at the top. I've just got, I love this film so much. <laughs> That's great. That's so funny. I was like, can you see my notes? <laughs> oh my goodness. That's perfect. There's just so much creativity and craft put into this adaptation. And I love how it's now, even though it was supposed to be very modern at the time, now it's like a perfect time capsule of the mid 90s American culture. Yeah. And For sure. Like most of the updates, I just thought it was so creative how all of their daggers and swords were just guns that were called daggers and swords. And <gasps> Do you know what? I made a list of um, the updates that they made that I love. And that was oh one of gosh. them. But like, I've got like a whole <laughs> list of like all the things that I thought was amazing that they updated it for the, for the 90s, uh, which I can go into, but you carry on first. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's perfect. I think the beach setting is also just very aesthetically pleasing. I like where they chose to set this film. And it was so funny because I watched this just to kind of refresh my memory, even though it didn't necessarily need refreshing, but I just wanted an excuse to watch it again. I watched it a day after seeing Ant-Man and oh, the Wasp. Oh, I haven't seen that yet. And is it good? Oh, it's so good. <laughs> I want to see it. It's very How does- cute. It's just like a really yeah, fun movie. I was going to say, how does Paul Rudd not age? Like, he looks the same now as he did I then. Know. It's crazy. That's the note I have. Like, he's barely aged in yeah. 20 plus years. It's crazy. It's like, what, what is his secret? I want to know. <laughs> oh, yeah. And um, Harold, I think his last name is pronounced Perinio. I usually always refer to him as Michael from Lost because that's how I'm most familiar with him. Yes. He's my favorite Mercutio. I love the way he portrays that character. Me too. Me too. And I love the um, uh, the decision that they made to make him overtly gay uh, because I think I mean, I, I like to think that it wasn't a controversial decision at that point, but it probably was um, because I think there's always been, I mean, if you look back at interpretations of Romeo and Juliet and the Mercutio character over the years, there's always been a uh, underlying assumption that he had uh, homosexual leanings. And there's even a theory that he's secretly in love with Romeo. And that's why he gets so upset at the thought that he's got married and not told him. But I think when Shakespeare Shakespeare uh, was being uh, like, if you think of the like grand tradition of Shakespeare, a lot of that comes from the 19th century when they were putting on plays in the Victorian era when everyone was like, we don't have gay people. Oh God, no, that's disgusting. So it's, it's um, when uh, Shakespeare's been put on since then there's been this kind of tendency to forget that that was or, or not allude to that overtly so much but I love that they were like nope it's, that's pretty much what Shakespeare intended so we're just gonna run with it and why shouldn't we it's the 90s for god's sake we should be over this by now um, and I just love that he's become such a gay icon because mm-hmm. it's it's just wonderful he's a glorious character in this film Oh, yeah, he definitely is. And the only other notes that I have for this is that I just wrote the words neon Catholicism. Okay. 
Yeah. And I think it's just the imagery in this film I really love. Like when they show Romeo walking down to a presumably dead Juliet and there's all of these neon... Oh my gosh, why am I forgetting the word? Crosses? Yes, yeah. crosses. There we go. I'm like, I have the image in my head. Why can't I think of the word? I know what yes. you mean. Yeah. And all the statues and the icons and stuff around. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so interesting. And my last note that I have, just what was really a standout scene for me when I first saw this movie is when Romeo and Juliet first look at each other through this connecting fish tank and they're bathrooms that they're in and it's like probably very unrealistic that something like that would be in between bathrooms but I just love how beautifully it's shot it's so beautiful I love that scene and the both the the lighting in that scene is so clever because it makes them look so ethereal and like in their own little world because the rest of the party is so sort of like red toned and big and loud and pink and you know sparkly whereas here it's just like neon blue and it's almost like neon blue becomes their color in a way because you see it all the way through till their death scene so um um, it's it's um I actually read an interview where that the I think it's the director of uh photography or something of, on the film I don't know his name which is uh, or whether it was a he or a she I don't know <laughs> but and um, they said uh, um that that scene was really hard to shoot because they kept getting the reflection back off of the glass um so it was really hard to like figure out the right lighting and in the end what they did was they just had the neon blue fluorescent bulbs in the tank lighting from below no other lights because that was the only way they could get rid of the reflection and and get that that kind of look so um yeah I, I love that scene and I love the use of water um because that's they use water a lot in that film uh to kind of uh whenever Romeo and Juliet are together so you think about the swimming pool and that kind of thing um it's just beautiful my notes are mainly around um things that so I've got a couple of notes on things that I loved in terms of the contemporary updates so the swords as as guns I think is genius like so clever um the use of pop music throughout the like the whole soundtrack in general is amazing and what I found interesting speaking uh not speaking what I found interesting uh reading about how they uh, made the decisions on the soundtrack is that Baz Luhrmann said what well, they really took a lot of their inspiration for everything about the film about what Shakespeare would have wanted like what his original intention would have been and imagining that in today's context and Shakespeare used to use popular songs of the day in all of his plays he'd just shove them in because the crowd would enjoy it and he was just interested in getting bums on the seats so it's exactly what Shakespeare would have done if he was doing it today. He would have just shoved in a bunch of the most popular music and and been like, well, that'll get, draw the crowds in. So it's interesting that they thought about everything with that intention. The other thing I really uh, enjoyed about the film was noticing all the bits that either call back or foreshadow uh, Strictly Borum and and, uh, and uh, Moulin Rouge because the the Strictly Ballroom, they had the billboard of um, Coca-Cola um, by the by, by uh, the outside of the dance school. And apparently they had to coke didn't want to they got coke to pay for it as like a product placement in that film but um 
in this one they've updated it to be Shakespearean in terms of they've used the logo but they've changed it to L'Amour which they then use in Moulin Rouge which is interesting to see the kind of coke metaphor gone through and and talking of the signage actually I love all the signs in Romeo and Juliet and the way that they it's almost like a little Shakespeare in jokes um, dotted through the film because there's like quotes from his other plays used as adverts and like signs at the gas station and stuff and it's like if you've studied any type of Shakespeare at any length you'll spot at least some of them um and it's like almost like oh yeah I know that one oh yeah that's good <laughs> so that's really nice on the topic of the soundtrack uh Radiohead um the songs in that soundtrack are amazing and I used to have um because they did the uh song uh oh, what's it called I can't remember the name of it but it's in the middle of the the film um and I used to have the lyrics of that printed out and put on my wall as a teenager because <laughs> I was just that you know melodramatic and moody but then I also really loved the song that they wrote especially for the film that they use as the end credits and the, the song's actually called an exit credits for a for a film and that's such a good song I love it so much um so and it, I think uh, Baz gave them the last 20 seconds 20 seconds the last 20 minutes of the movie and said can you write something for the end credits and and that's what they produced and it's it's brilliant i love it (laughs) it is is the radiohead song you're thinking of from the middle of the film is it talk show host that's the one i was obsessed with that song too after (laughs) seeing this movie i remember just loving the guitar chords especially it's brilliant yeah and the and uh oh god i had the if you listen to the lyrics and look them up there um oh what did i have on my wall i had something like um i'll be waiting with a gun and a pack of sandwiches yeah. um and and i remember my mum coming in and being like do we need to have a chalk and i was like it's just lyrics from a song mum. you wouldn't understand <laughs> But I think her and her and my dad were a bit worried about me for a little while. Like, oh God, what, what, why has she got these words on her wall? Uh, and I was like, it's just a nice song. I just like it. <laughs> oh yeah, I felt very much the same way. We're in good company with each other. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's just something, and I said this at the beginning, like Baz Luhrmann saw my generation of uh, girls coming because he was like... I'm going to cast Leonardo DiCaprio because um, I mean, he, I don't think he was very well known when he was cast, but I think if you've seen him do any type of acting, you know that he's amazing. And I think Baz was probably like, this is going to be catnip to teenage girls. Um, and then you get all the cool pop stars of the day. You've got Claire Danes and then you, you do a really cool update on a play that everyone's having to learn in school anyway. I mean, it's just almost guaranteed moneymaker. <laughs> um and, you know, everyone at that age is so, uh, like, you feel as a young teenager, it's a crazy age because you just, everything is like the end of the world or the best thing ever. Do you know what I mean? There's no in between. And that's what Romeo and Juliet as a story is. Like, it's just completely um, melodramatic and like telling a love story that is love with no breaks do you know what I mean like and that's what you mm-hmm. dream of as a teenage girl so um yeah it's I would think I was definitely right place right time for that <laughs> oh yeah I was slightly too young when this movie first came out to appreciate it I was still fairly young but by the time Titanic came out I was 
old enough to kind of remember the frenzy around that movie and just how crazy people went over it. And getting older and um, going back to Romeo and Juliet and seeing how that came out right before Titanic, I can just, even though I wasn't aware of it at the time, I can remember how crazy people were over Titanic and thinking about how it must have been the same for this movie. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder, I do wonder if they still show this movie when they're teaching it to kids uh, that are sort of early teens uh, at school. Because, And I wonder what those teens think of it. Because I, re-watching it for this podcast, I was like, I feel like it hasn't aged too badly. Like it's still, no. to me, watches, reads as cool as fuck. Do you know what I mean? I'm sorry if you don't swear, you yeah. can bleep that out. But um, it, do you know I what know, I mean? That's all you want. <laughs> Some podcasts are like, oh no, please don't swear. And I forget. But um yeah, no, it's um it reads to me as just like the coolest effing thing on the planet. Do you know what I mean? And um but I wonder if kids these days are watching it going, Oh, that's like, you know, like we would probably have watched something from the seventies and been like, Oh, that's really dated, like that's really cringy. I don't know. I wonder if it still uh, reads cool to kids today. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. I think it's one of those movies that even though it was very successful at the time, it was also a little bit ahead of its time. Mm. So maybe that helps it in terms yeah. of not aging as much. Yeah. Or maybe it's one of those movies that will kind of remain timeless as well. Like I look at the first Jurassic Park movie, for example, and I feel like that's a movie that's kind of timeless. Yeah, for sure. And young audiences still like it to this day. So hopefully it will be one of those movies as well. Yeah, I just really want to be able to show it to my teenage kid at some point and be like, look how great this is. And then not to like roll their eyes and be like, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> so, you know. Oh, yeah. Like when they're studying it for class like before your teacher shows you this let me show it to you <laughs> yeah, exactly um but you know maybe i'll just need to ask a kid or grab one off the street and be like what do you think <laughs> i know it's like i need to find some local youths and just ask them how they feel about this movie yeah i know i know i'm so not in touch with the kids these days <laughs> Moving into Moulin Rouge then. Yeah. This movie came out in 2001 in the US. Was it around the same time in the UK? It was. It was. I remember because I was um, at school. I was finishing. We finish. Uh, we do some exams around the age of 16 uh, called GCSEs. Um, I, I don't know if that's around the same time as you guys do your SATs. I don't know. We do those and then you can either, some schools let you stay on optionally for another couple of years to do A-levels at 18 um, or you can leave and go to a different um, college that just specializes in A-levels um, and that's what I did. So I know that it came out in 2001 because I had to leave um, that year to go to college and I was at college when it came out. So, And then and then after you've done your A-levels, you'd then go on to university because I know you guys call university college, so it's confusing. <laughs> but yeah, so I that's why I know what the year was because I wasn't at school anymore. I was at college. <laughs> nice. It's always good when you're able to remember a year because of some kind of association with it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> So I'm very intrigued when you will be talking about this because I would love for you to discuss your more recent experience with seeing this movie. Yes, I will. So I'll just give my couple of notes. 
I love the opening title slash song for this movie. I love how the credits begin where it looks like someone's like conducting the orchestra and everything for the so good. 20th Century yes. Fox thing. And I just love how the movie opens. I just think it's so brilliant and beautiful. Like I could just watch it over and over again. I think that both the song covers and the original songs are great. And I remember hearing that Come What May was originally written for Romeo and Juliet, but they saved it for this movie. And I'm kind of glad they did it that way because it just, I can't imagine a Moulin Rouge without a Come What May. So I'm happy that turned out to be that way. Yeah. And, but did you know that because they saved it for this movie and it was originally written for Romeo and Juliet, that meant it wasn't eligible for best song at the Oscars that year? Oh, gosh. I do kind of remember hearing that now that you mentioned it. Man. (laughs) But yeah, it's brilliant. I'm glad. But it does work. uh, To me, it would work a hundred times better in Moulin Rouge than Romeo. I don't know where they'd even put it in Romeo and Juliet, I guess. (laughs) I don't know, in the background somewhere. But yeah. You and McGregor singing your song like changed me as a person. I love that (laughs) sequence so much. Oh my gosh, it's just so beautiful. And I wish it lasted a bit longer than it does because I think he only sings like a verse, half of a verse of that song and then the chorus. And I wish it went on a bit longer because I just love that sequence so much. Yeah, me too. But yeah, overall, I think with this movie, I put in my notes, Lerman continues to hone his craft with every film he makes. And it's quite apparent in Moulin Rouge. I think he nailed the imagery and visuals with Romeo and Juliet, but this is the movie where he gets like really stellar performances from his cast. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like he's gotten great performances before, but I think it just, this movie elevated it to a completely different level. Yeah. Like he was more focused on the technical aspects before, and now he's like, I've nailed all the technical aspects. Let me make sure that everything else is taken care of too. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I think um, it was interesting because I was reading an interview that he did where he explained where he got the inspiration for the film from. And it was from watching Bollywood films. Um, And he was watching them thinking, these are so amazing, over the top, uh, you know, colorful productions. But they also swing from like crazy humor, like laugh out loud, funny, slapsticky type moments to really like intense emotional drama very quickly and he was like I wonder if I can produce something that does this but for the western stage like for the western audience would it work and so that was the thing that got him thinking about the Moulin Rouge story Um, and when I read that I was like oh it makes complete sense and also what I found was interesting from re-watching these three kind of back to back strictly ballroom is that humorous funny slapstick kind of humorous side that he was really honing in on and then romeo and juliet is very very serious like there are some funny moments but it's it's you know the emotion it really packs a punch in that film and it feels like he's put the two together for moulin rouge um in a and a, it's and I just, you know, it's it's just really interesting to see that he got that inspiration from somewhere like Bollywood because I'm like, oh, I can see that. I can really see that. And I can see how you've used your back, your previous experience to kind of mesh into creating this kind of pinnacle of the trilogy, as it were. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's really good. It definitely is. I think until La La Land came out, this is probably my favourite 
musical like contemporary musical um musicals aren't that's that. a great one too musical yeah i love that. <laughs> i think uh, musicals i love musicals i'm a massive musical fan like um and i just i get so sad when people dismiss them as like not as good as other films um because i I just think they're just another way of telling a story and you know what about them makes people think that they're not as worthy I I don't get it don't get it at all yeah and I feel like musicals take more time in craft yeah because you're doing more disciplines aren't you you're doing not only the story and like a dramatic film or telling some kind of story but you've also got to figure out the music aspect and how that's gonna complement the story and elevate the story rather than feel like something you've just popped in for no reason like it's a real art uh so maybe I should get on to my more recent experience (laughs) with the movie so as I mentioned I loved it when it came out and it's been one of my one of my favorite films for since then um because I just think it's the pinnacle of everything I love about films in one like mashed into one film um and there is a uh a company in the UK I don't know if um anyone in the US will have heard of it but it's kind of um well known in the UK um it's London based um they're called Secret Cinema and they put on uh productions uh once or twice a year and they've been doing it for about a decade now um of uh they'll choose a film and then they will build um a the world of the film so um they will uh, find a location somewhere in London. It's always a secret until <laughs> you find out like a couple of weeks before where you might be going. Um, but it's within the kind of public transport network. So it's easier to get to. Um, and they so they pick a film, they build um, a, a, the world of the film at this location they've chosen. So make it look like sets from the film. Um, then they um, kind of create some form of performance art around the film so that uh, when you arrive they're acting out it's like you're in the movie so everyone has to dress up you get given costume instructions so you have to dress up like uh, a background or like you'd fit in in the world of the film Um, and you turn up there's about a couple of hours of uh, the artist kind of leading you through various scenes of the film so you're like oh my god I'm in the movie Um, and then eventually Eventually, it culminates in a screening of the film and um, there's like food and drink stalls so you can like eat and drink as you please you can follow this you get you know there's little storylines you can follow a bit like any other performance theatre I don't know if you've seen some of the performance theatre things so is it was it escape no more sleep no more something like that that they did in New York I've heard of that yeah I've I saw that in London when they did it here so it's like that but it ends in an actual film screening of the film and uh, and then after you either go home or if it's a Friday or a Saturday night, they have a license to stay open longer. So they usually do some kind of um, bar and uh, like a, turn it into a bit of a club um, till like 2 a.m. So anyway, <laughs> I've been to quite a few of these. They've done loads of types of films. They've done Back to the Future. They did Shawshank Redemption. Both of those were great. Um, but they announced last year they were going to do Moulin Rouge. And I was like... 
mind blown. Oh yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I'm going to get to be in the movie. So I was really excited, um, dressed up. I think I got given a character of like a writer, like a poor penniless writer. So I had, I didn't get to be a can-can dancer, sadly. Um, but um, I guess it was less expensive for me in terms of making the costume. That's true. Um, but we, yeah. So I just had like this like white shirt and carried like a quill around and like had a big uh, kind of 19th century dress, uh, skirt on. Anyway, um, so they led you through the um, performance art aspect of it was having a great time and then we went to sit down for the screening and I we got in our seats me and my husband were there like ready um had a sort of a bottle of wine between us and then they announced that Baz Luhrmann himself <sighs> has come to see it with us and we, he, ca- he came on the stage like where they were gonna screen the movie um and we were like the whole crowd has had a few a bit to drink by now so everyone's gone nuts like going oh my god this is amazing and he said a few words and then he went to sit down to see the movie and then we notice he comes to sit they've got like a little table and chairs for him literally right next to where we were sat so I was like I'm gonna get to watch Baz Luhrmann watch his own movie and it's like my favorite director and one of my favorite films like what is life like how is this happening to me and it was just it was wonderful because I was like oh maybe you know when they say don't meet your idols (laughs) like I was like oh what if he's like doesn't care or what if he like leaves halfway through but he was uh, like watching it like as it enraptured with it as everyone else and it was just great like anytime anything like dramatic happened I'd Mm -hmm. like sneak a glance at him and be like oh what's looking what's he doing and he'd like smile and nod and wave and all that kind of stuff and yeah he was just brilliant I just it was it was one of the most I mean I was quite drunk but it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life to watch one of these directors you've admired for years and years watch their own film with you essentially um it was amazing it was so good and interestingly enough in a few weeks time Secret Cinema are doing um Romeo and Juliet so I'm going to that um and uh, whether Baz will be there or not again I don't know but I'm very excited to enter the world of Romeo and Juliet uh with them because it's really good (laughs) yes please keep me updated on that I would love to hear your story about how that whole experience turns out for you because that just seems like such a cool world and a cool aesthetic to immerse yourself into and I just yeah I want to hear about it I'm planning the costume at the moment because we got given our instructions the other day and they only send them out a couple of weeks in advance so um I don't know I I'm I've been you get given a character and for this one obviously they've sorted people into Montagues and Capulets and I'm I'm a Montague um and I'm part of Benvolio's gang um so (laughs) so lots of Hawaiian shirts and like that kind of thing uh denim and tattoos and uh that sort of thing so it'll be fun I'm looking forward to it even if Baz doesn't show it'll be great so yeah yeah it'll be good um but yeah I I we went off on a tangent there maybe I should get back to <laughs> back to the actual movie um I think I guess the only other notes that I have I mean Nicole and Ewan are surprisingly good mm-hmm. at singing I remember before it came out I think there was a lot of skepticism about whether they could do that job but I think they did a good job I thought they were really good you know when the soundtrack came out I bought the album and listened to it non-stop like I wore out my CD it was so good so good um and I think it is that thing again I was 
15, 16 when it came out. So it was just right place, right time, like showing a love. I mean, that's one of the themes, isn't it? That's consistent across the trilogy is love and like forbidden love of some description. And I think that's going to be eternally popular to, to people that are exploring love for the first time themselves um so I think that's why at that age I took those movies to heart so much and I read um a interview again with Baz Luhrmann I was doing a lot of research for this podcast as you can tell um and he um they asked him why is love so popular as a theme and he said well when you're 15 you're likely to do something stupid um, when it comes to love. But most of us survive that and we grow up and we understand that love is like a dangerous sports car that you've got to learn to drive. Otherwise, you end up going completely over the edge of the road with it. But then he says, those of us that survive an experience like that almost look back at it with a kind of warm nostalgia, like, oh, I remember when I used to feel like that. And I feel like that answer perfectly sums up my why I love these movies so much, because it reminds me of when I was in a place where I was feeling feeling so many things so yes. intensely and it was just a wonderful it's just a wonderful at the time it feels like hell but when you look uh-huh. back at it as an adult it's just a wonderful time to be alive <laughs> and those movies sort of take me back to that time so I will always have that and that's really great I feel exactly the same way I think I was around the exact same age too when I started watching those movies so they connected to me in that very similar fashion as well. I remember like just writing the quote, the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. Like that really stuck with me. Yeah, I feel like really, I I actually wrote that down for this uh, rewatch because I feel like that could almost be the moral of the entire trilogy because that's what he's saying in Strictly Ballroom. Like forget your stupid parents and their war over ballroom. Like the most important thing is to learn to love and be loved in return. And again, with Romeo and Juliet, like love is worth dying over. Like it's that important. And obviously it's the big motif of Moulin Rouge. Um, I, I do think that's that's a massive theme and the moral of the trilogy. And it probably, I don't know if this was intentional, although I would assume it's probably intentional. It's interesting that this is the red curtain referring to, of course, theater and how there's a red curtain, but also red is kind of associated with love and love, passion. Yeah. So for sure, for that sure. kind of fits. The only other note I have on Moulin Rouge is I absolutely love the Duke character. He is my problematic fave. (laughs) So the character is, uh, especially towards the end, like there are issues with what he does and I'm not condoning that in the slightest, but Richard Roxburgh, who plays him, is a genius. He is so good. I don't think he's been in much other than, I mean, this is the only thing I think I've seen him in, but some of the lines he delivers and the whole like a virgin scene is just yes. it has me in stitches every time and I know it's problematic and you know I'm a big fan of like looking back and things and saying oh, should I still like this because this was a, now seems to me to be an issue but I don't know just he's just his delivery of some of the lines is some of my favorite stuff about the movie <laughs> oh yeah I can totally see that I think everyone's entitled to a few problematic faves here and there. So <laughs> I feel like as long as you're aware of the yes. problems, then that's okay. <laughs> Definitely. Well, if you would be interested in moving into the ranking, yeah, this is going to be hard. <laughs> I know. I feel okay with what I chose, but it just took me a long time to get there. Um, for number three, though, I chose Strictly Ballroom and. 
I think it's just because in this movie, he's still kind of like Baz Luhrmann is still kind of learning his style. It just feels like a first film from a director. And I just don't have as much of an emotional attachment to it as the other two. But it's still a good movie, though, by all means. Um, so like you, I I have reordered this like a million times since I realized that I had to rank them. Um, so I think mine might be quite controversial and it might feel like I've contradicted everything I've said. I think to caveat all of this ranking, all three of these films, I love to pieces. So this is like choosing my favorite children. Um, so when I rank something as third, it doesn't mean that I don't like it. <laughs> so just to put that as a caveat. But um, so I'm going with Moulin Rouge for number three. And the reason the reason for that is I think I've just expressed how much I love it. Like I do love it. But for me, interestingly on this rewatch and watching the other two so like I don't think I've ever watched them all three as a as a sort of back-to-back like this so and getting that real comparison between them and so for me I think when I I tried to really watch it with like an objective kind of critical more critical eye this time and I feel like when I mentioned that he was trying to combine the kind of the humor and the over the topness with the melodrama. For me, I found the tonal shifts in Moulin Rouge on this rewatch. I mean, the melodrama of the sad bits and the really serious bits, for me, it just didn't land as well with me these days. Like as a teen, I was like there. I was like in it. And like, uh, in fact, one of the times that I went to the theater to see it as a teen, like when it came out, um, I remember at the very, it was must've been the second or third time I went because I knew what was going to happen. Um, and I remember the final scene where Satine is dying and um, Christian is, Ewan McGregor does like the big cry scene and he's like really going for it in that scene. I remember there were some people at the back of the cinema like laughing. And I remember being like, why are you laughing? Like really indignant, like really angry that they had found this like really, really serious scene so funny. But watching it now, I wouldn't laugh at it now, but I can kind of see why some people might have found it a bit hokey because it goes from being so funny and so like jokey and slapstick to suddenly wanting you to put you in another gear that's so completely different. Um, It's, I just, I don't know. I just found it, uh, it didn't work as well as it used to when I was a teenager. And maybe that's just because I've got older like I still love it don't get me wrong I still love it but I can I I had to put it third for that reason because something just wasn't landing as well yeah I I can totally get that I actually ranked Moulin Rouge as number two because I have an emotional attachment to it but at the same time I think what I'm the most mesmerized by is like the first 30 minutes or so of the movie and then I always kind of lose focus or I find myself kind of doing other things while it's playing in the background. And I think it is because of the tonal shifts in the movie or just something about it that I don't know, like it's hard to watch it if I'm in a good mood because there are all of these sad elements. It's hard to describe, but I think something about the tone of it kind of makes it a hard movie to watch if you're trying to watch a specific type of a movie or... Yeah. I don't know how to describe it. It's it's interesting. Yeah. No, I get it. Yeah. Uh, so my number two is Strictly Warren <laughs> because I feel that 
although it is rough around the edges um, in comparison to the other two, um, there's something about it that just um, and I and I, like you, I don't have as much of an emotional connection to it, but I just think objectively it works better as a film just slightly than Moulin Rouge because it's it sticks to one tone throughout. You're not like constantly being asked to pull in different directions, but it does have an emotional heart to it. And I also just think his shooting of the dance scenes are amazing. And although they he does it really well in Moulin Rouge as well, there's not as many of them as there are in this film for obvious reasons. Um, so I think Strictly Ballroom was... Um, it's interestingly, Strictly Ballroom, I think on IMDb is his most critically acclaimed like that gets i think that's nine point something um uh which to me is bonkers because uh clearly we've both chosen a different one for number one but um i i i, I can see why people like it and think that it might be his best work because it is it is um it's a it's a cute story and um i think telling it through dance just works really well and he clearly knows his stuff when it comes to shooting the world of dance because he's from that world himself so i like it so number one for me i put Romeo and Juliet just because I have the strongest emotional attachment to it. I find it the most rewatchable. Um, and I think the fact that it is a little bit rough around the edges in some scenes, like I think especially the exposition when the Montague boys and the Capulet boys are fighting at the gas station and everything's just like all over the place and crazy. And there's all of these like really intense zooms on something and they're all yelling at each other. Like it's, it's a lot to take in at first, but I like it because of that. I'm just so entertained by it. And I think it's because, which I don't know if this might also be your reasoning behind it, but I think it's also because it's the first of his movies that I saw and it's kind of what got me interested into his filmmaking. Yeah, totally. I So, you know, clearly I've picked it as well. And I think part of the reason is that 12-year-old me would not forgive 33-year-old me if I didn't pick it as number one. I just think, you know, for kids studying Shakespeare and that's why I think it's interesting to think about if that's still true today but certainly in the 90s for kids studying Shakespeare in that kind of MTV generation it made it so relevant because you were reading these words on a page in a textbook that was just kind of like what's this funny language like what does this all mean and having your teacher like explain it to you whereas Baz didn't you know there was no like cliff notes to the movie yet you know you know exactly what they mean when they say those words in a way that and it's so engaging and it's so you know it's made so relevant you know it touches on a lot of themes that are relevant for kids today things like gangs and um you know police state and that kind of thing it's just so clever it's just so clever and I just think I I, from what I've read it was quite a battle to get the network to approve of it Uh, not the network the production uh companies the network it's not it's not a tv show (laughs) um it was quite a struggle to get the production companies to sign off on keeping the shakespearean language because they were like the story's great the story sounds fine but nobody's gonna listen to people talking shakespearean english for two hours and so 
Baz knew that it, you know, it would work and he just kept pushing for it. And, and he was right because it does work. It totally works. And it's, it's a love letter to Shakespeare essentially. And, and I, I just think it's, it's so, it's the cleverest of his movies and that's why I love it so much. Plus, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio at his peak. I think it was all downhill looks wise in terms of Leonardo DiCaprio from then on. Like people talk about him in Titanic, but I think Romeo and Juliet is where it was at for Leo, for sure. <laughs> Just him on the, with his Hawaiian shirt and his, and I'm really anti-smoking, but with the cigarette and the floppy fringe and yeah. <laughs> I feel the same way. Like I, I'm definitely anti-smoking as well. But something about this movie makes smoking look appealing, which I should hate it for because yes. I'm so anti-smoking. <laughs> but I just it does. <laughs> Although like the Capulets are their thin little cigar things. Um, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. But um, yeah, I love it for lots of other things. Not not just making cigarettes look cool. <laughs> Of course, yeah. And I I should have looked more into this before recording the podcast. I don't remember if Baz Luhrmann still plans on making a third film in his, I don't know if it's called like a classic trilogy, but whatever combines Australia and The Great Gatsby, I think he intended on making that a trilogy as well. And he oh, really? wanted to do a third film, but then he started doing... The Get Down, which was a Netflix series, and yeah. then that kind of did not last very long. So I don't know if he's still planning on making a third film in this trilogy, but I'd love to do another episode if that ever becomes oh, wow. a thing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I I still need to watch The Get Down. Can you believe it? I haven't watched it yet. And I, But I remember when he was at the Moulin Rouge secret cinema screening, he mentioned The Get Down because um, he was, I think, finishing off the second season when uh, he, he was there. Um, and he was, I think they'd had the news that it hadn't been renewed. He certainly seemed pissed about something. <laughs> um, because he because for him, um, The Get Down was like a real passion project. Like he believed did I, th- I think I feel like all of his movies are kind of passion projects because he doesn't do very many of them and I feel like he only does them if he super believes in it um but he he really believes in it as a tv show and and I really want to watch it because it sounds like exactly the sort of thing I would enjoy I mean I love New York I love uh, hip-hop so it would be great and I will watch it but um I feel sad that it was cancelled before he was ready to finish it so um but he didn't mention what he was going to be working on next so you know if he had that in mind that would be awesome I would love to do I'd love to see that trilogy um come to fruition it'd be cool oh yeah so would I do you have any other thoughts on anything before we wrap up no just thank you for having me it's been such fun to revisit these films I mean I've watched Moulin Rouge and and Romeo and Juliet a billion times but never never back to back strangely and never certainly never back to back with Strictly Ballroom um Strictly Ballroom was the one that the only one that I had to get hold of because I didn't already own it um and I don't know why because it's a good film like I should have that I should get a copy but um but yeah it's been really great to like uh revisit my thoughts and think about it and like look into how they were all made and read about Baz and it's been great so thank you for having me (laughs) of course thank you for being a guest this has been great Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Trifecta Podcast.